special edition of the Helipod because of this new Jordan documentary. Everybody is talking about the greatest basketball player of all time. And uh, one of the men on the most wanted list right now is the man who created Air Jordan, Michael Jordan's agent, the greatest agent who's ever lived in my mind, David Falk, joining us from uh, his house in Bethesda, Maryland. David, you're making the rounds, aren't you? Yeah, I, th I feel like sort of Austin Powers. I think for the last 10 years, I've sort of been cryogenically frozen. All of a sudden, the doc comes out, and I've got like 8 zillion interview requests. And there's very few things that are more fun to talk about for me than Michael Jordan because I've learned so much from just being around him for, for all these years. You know, And as the doc points out to your listeners, his psychological approach to the game, it wasn't his dunking. It wasn't his shooting it was his it was his mental approach to the game that separated him from any player who ever lived well and that's one of the things that we've been able to see in, in this documentary is just how he was just such a unique individual and I want to get into into Michael in just a minute but first I want to ask about you one of the things that we do here on uh the helipod helipod David is we talk about people's rookie year and I've watched so much on you the last couple of days, uh, how you got into the business and uh, going to Syracuse and then GW Law School and then starting with ProServe and literally begging Donald Dell, let me just come in and work for free. And you, you were a rookie. What, what would you say was your rookie year as an agent? 74, 75? When did you actually start repping people on your own? Well, I started working for Dahl in May, on May 25th, 1974, when I was still in law school. He hired me full-time in August of 75. And the first class of clients that I worked with that I had nothing to do with recruiting or negotiating, I wrote their contracts with the three workers they had in 76. John Lucas, who was the first pick in the draft from Maryland. Uh, Wally Walker, who was the fifth pick in the draft from UVA and Adrian Dantley, who was the sixth pick of the draft in Notre Dame. And I wrote all their contracts as a lawyer. And then the senior guys who didn't want to be involved at all, what they call babysitting, said, look, just take care of these guys. I was just starting out. I was 25 years old. Um, I could recall John Lucas in Houston would call me up and say, I got to get new tires for my car. And I would call five different tire merchants in Houston to try to save them you know, $25 on a tire. Today, you see if you save the guy 200000 on his Bentley or on his right. Mercedes. Um, it was all almost pure back, more pure back then because the money was just so different. John Lucas, as the number one pick in the draft, made $300,000 a year. And for your listeners, watchers, is the answer to the trivia question, who was the last player in the history of basketball signed before the ABA and the NBA merged in 1976? And the answer is John Lucas. So the second pick from Indiana, Scott May, who's the National Player of the Year, he got 100000 and the money sort of went down. So today, that's less than the minimum. So the whole scale of the business was so different back then. And for me, there was no amount of personal attention that was too small for me. I was, I was living my dream. When you, when you went into that room to tell Michael about, the, to present to him the, the various uh, 
the very shoe companies, the endorsement opportunities, it's well documented that he didn't want to go with Nike. Uh, Adidas and Converse were the two big players. He actually didn't even want to go on the trip to the Nike facility to be a part of the presentation. And you leaned on his parents to convince him to go. Was that, was that a call you, you were dreading making? No, no. You mean calling his parents? Yeah. No, I'll, t- I'll tell you why. You know, so I just explained how we came to represent Nike. There was no recruiting at all, zero. Dean, Dean Smith didn't allow recruiting, nor did John Thompson or Coach K, zero. And so we signed Michael, and I told him on my own, you know, the fact that you signed with us, you know we have a good track record, you know Coach Smith recommended us, but it doesn't mean you should trust us. We have to earn your trust. And that will take time, make two or three years. So with most players, Michael's not the only one, but most players, um, I say the same thing with Elton Brand, you know, and his mother, Daisy, Malcolm Brogdon and his mother, Jan Adams, is the vice provost of Morehouse. The first three or four years, you're making these decisions. And a lot of the things that you're recommending, the players don't either understand or feel comfortable with. And you have to like do it like in a family council. And you have to get the parents, they trust their parents on board. Now, Michael came from an extremely close-knit family. His parents were amazing people. If you ever question why he was so competitive, just beat his parents. Now, obviously, unfortunately, you can't beat his dad who tragically passed, but you see his mom on the dock. Dolores is a lovely woman. She looks great. You know, it's amazing. she looks exactly the same as she looks. She doesn't like. look like she's aged in 30 years. She's really, uh, she's a great motivational speaker. She travels around the world for the various divisions of the U.S. government to give motivational speeches. And so I said to Michael, my very first thing I ever asked of him, um, I said, look, we're going to meet the companies. I, you know, I really like Nike. I think Nike is hungry. They're tiny. Nike was a very small company. They probably were a $30 million company in, uh, in 1984. They weren't that strong in basketball. Converse was the official shoe of the NBA. They had Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Dr. J, Bernard, sure. Isaiah Thomas, Herb Williams, Rolando Blight, they had everybody. And they were the official shoe of the Olympics. Uh, and they were the official shoe of Carolina. Um, but Michael didn't like Converse. He loved Adidas. Ironically, Frank Kregel, who I'd worked with from 1974 till 1983, personally represented the owner of the company that's really called Adidas. But we had a very, very close relationship with Adidas. We had Stan Smith, who's got the leading shoe of all time in tennis with Adidas. Raul Ramirez, Yvonne Lendl. I mean, tons of our clients with, with Adidas. And the, and the union in tennis, the ATP, was the official clothing of the ATP. But Dossler had died right before Michael came out. And the, country, the company was somewhat of a disarray with the, with the family. They were trying to wrestle who was going to control it. And the head of international marketing, John Bolter, came to me and said, David, I know that Michael loves Adidas. I know you want to you know, take a run at it, but we're just not in a position to, for the money it's going to cost us to execute the kind of contract that you're going to expect. So we visit with a lot of companies, a lot of companies you've never heard of that don't even exist today. One of them was called Hyde Spot Belt, which ironically had a name shoe with an athlete named OJ Simpson. They had a football shoe called- well, I remember that company, sure. Juice Mobiles. Uh, it's Saucony. And John, yeah. John Fisher owned the company 
actually offered Michael more money than any other company that we talked to. But I felt that Nike had the biggest need for Michael uh, and they had the resources to market him. And I had a very, very close relationship with the head of marketing for Nike, whose name was Rob Strasser. Um, and so- what, Was Phil Knight in on that meeting or was, was Strasser the one that was doing all the presenting? Strasser. Phil okay. Knight, I'll, I'll come to that. So, okay. so, you know, a lot of people question, you know, who induced Michael to go at Nike? Sonny Vaccaro at his documentary basically takes full credit. George Ravelling, who's a very good friend of mine, was the assistant coach on Michael's Olympic team, takes credit. And I say those guys were so impactful in recruiting Jordan that they couldn't even get him to visit the campus. <laughs> he, he didn't want to get on the plane to go see him. Um, and so I asked his parents, I said, look, Michael can go with whoever he wants to go with. You know, I'm going to make recommendations, but you have to make the final decision. I just want him to see him and hear him. And if he doesn't like him, like that's up to him. So Dolores George said to me, Dave, don't worry, he will be on that. There was no, she said, I'll try to get him on the plane or a good chance. I said, don't worry, he will be on the plane. So we got on the plane. He was not a happy camper. You know, it's a long trip out to Beaverton. And what I recall of Sonny's role is that we arrived at the airport. Sonny opened the car door and said, welcome to Oregon, Mrs. Jordan. And that was the only thing he said the entire time <laughs> in the meetings. I have no doubt. Sonny is a very, very you know, interesting guy. I have no doubt that Sonny had recommended to Nike management that Michael would be a good guy to sign. But that would, to me, like if I would have said to, um, to Nike in 2003, hey, look, you probably never heard of this guy, so I'm gonna make a recommendation. He's a really good high school player that I think has a really good chance to make an impact. You should sign him. His name is LeBron James. Or last year, if I would have said, hey, there's this guy in Durham a lot of people haven't heard of him, but like, I think he's really going to be a good player. You should take a shot at him. His name is Zion Williamson. Like, Michael was the national player of the year as a sophomore. Right. So, up to Nike was not exactly, uh, you know, a sleeper. So, so we got to Nike. Uh, Jordan never cracked a smile. The meeting starts. Strasser's presenting. And they've done a music video, uh, uh, Dan, of all of Michael's college highlights and his Olympic highlights and they put songs to the background. They had Jump by the Pointer Sisters, Jump by Van Halen, uh, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. I can almost remember, music videos were just starting back then. Sure. But the best part was Strasser sticks the tape into the machine and he can't get it to work. And he's sitting <laughs> That's there- That's the worst. 20 minutes, Strasser's about 6'3", 350. He looks like John Madden. And He's dripping with sweat. It's like someone had a, fire, a garden hose on his head and just pouring the water down. And finally, <laughs> someone helps him come in. They get the video on. Michael's watching it. The video is amazing. Never cracked a smile. Then we go into the boardroom, and Strasser shows him uh, T-shirts, hats, and sweatbands, and bags, like what, what's going to comprise the early line of Air Jordan. Doesn't crack a smile. At the end of the meeting, Phil Knight walks into the corner of the conference room. And Strasser knows, he did his homework, that Michael loves cars. And as he said, and if you come with Nike, and Strasser reaches into his pocket, and Phil Knight knows Strasser's a wild man, he's going to give him the keys to like a, you know, a Porsche or something. Phil Knight literally is clutching his heart. He has no idea what his wild guy Strasser's going to do. <laughs> and Strasser pulls out two 
one inch model cars of Mercedes and said, you know, <laughs> and it puts them on the table. It was hilarious. So then the meeting finally ends. It took like three or four hours. We go to dinner. Dinner ends. And I, have, I know Michael's really, I think he's going to fire me for making him fly to Portland. And so I say to him, I whisper in his ear, what do you think? And he said to me, this was amazing. I don't want to go anywhere else. You could have blown me away. It was my first introduction to why Michael's going to be a great poker player because he, he's 21 years old, never revealed his emotions, never showed he liked it, and he loved it. And he didn't go to any more meetings. So when we went to Converse, I took his dad, James, alone. Uh, and we went up to Reading, uh, Massachusetts to visit Converse. He was sold. It, it was over. That must have been a real kick in the balls for Converse when you can't even get the player to come to the meeting. I guess they knew at that point that wasn't going to work out. Well, it wouldn't have mattered if he came because Converse was the institution back then. Nike needed to do something dramatic to get themselves on the map. They had really good basketball players, but they really didn't have a great shoe back then. And they were a running company. Their heritage was running. Phil was a runner. He loved running. Uh, they had signed Ilya Nassasi, ironically, in tennis, Jimmy Connors for a year. But they're primarily known as running. And I thought that because they had the greatest need to sign a guy like Jordan, who was nationally known, um, that they would be the most aggressive in marketing. And I told all the companies, I gave them the famous line from Bobby Kennedy, ask not what America could do for you, but what you could do for America. I said, I know what Michael Jordan can do with a shoe company. And what I want to know is, what are you going to do to promote this young player? So Nike said, what would you like us to do? I said, I'd like you to treat him like he's not a team sport athlete, like he's an individual athlete, golfer, tennis player, boxer, want to have his own line of products, shoes and clothes. And, I, and we made them the best part of his contract. We, we forced him to spend a billion dollars promoting him in the first six months of, of 1984. A billion we, at that time? A million. A, a million. million. Oh, a million. Gotcha. Which is enormous back then. Are you kidding me? A million dollars was enormous. And the other thing that the doc didn't bring out, how do we do the commercial? So here's the first commercial, the first commercial ever. He signs with Nike. They make the first black and red shoe. And the NBA bans it because it doesn't conform. That's right. Of course. Colors. So Strasser calls me up in a panic. And he says, God, you know, we're screwed. They're not going to let him wear the shoe. I said, I didn't even know it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, it doesn't conform to the uniform colors. I said, God. I can't believe it. We're going to do a band in Boston commercial. And he goes, what does that mean? I said, we're going to do a commercial that basically says, you know, this shoe is so amazing that the NBA won't let you wear it. And five minutes, we did the commercial, the very first commercial where they show up from head to toe on October 25th, Nike introduced a new shoe. Uh, October 7th, the NBA banned it. And they had the dragnet with the chisel. They said, fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. The rest of the commercials, I'd be in Portland. Strauss would take me out for sushi and beer. I'd have two or three beers. I would come up with cornball ideas for the commercials. No advertising agency. No, you know, um, just ourselves. And so the second commercial is him on a playground. And he's getting, it says Flight 23 is getting ready for takeoff. And the smoke's coming out under the shoes. And goes up in the air and ducks. And they were corny, you know, but... Uh, they were memorable is what they were. I, it, it's amazing. And that was so, you know, you read 
Phil Knight's book. And that was so Nike at the time, right? Just to have a couple of guys go out and get sushi and a beer and come up with these ideas that were some of the great ideas in, in advertising history. You know, it's funny. I loved Nike back then. I've told this to Phil many times. You have to really admire Phil Knight. You know, I think Nike is one of the great industrial success stories in the 20th century in the United States. And, and he was obviously the passion and the, you know, the force behind creating that. And I told Phil about five years ago, I said, if Nike, if Michael had come out in 2004 instead of in 1984, Nike becomes so institutional they would not have done half the things they agreed to do for him. That's why we put them with them because they weren't institutional. They were incredibly uh, entrepreneurial and, and Strasser was a genius. He really was a genius. Um, and creating the line was, was, was very special. So, you know, with all credit to Sonny, I think Sonny has been a driving force in the shoe business. Uh, I love George Raveling, uh, who's a really dear friend. They used to be good friends, but they had a falling out. Each of them basically taking full credit for Nike, Nike being at Mike, Michael being at Nike. Uh, you know, as I said, they, as college coaches, they couldn't even get their recruit to take a campus visit. So um, <laughs> I give a lot of credit to Dolores and, and James Jordan for getting Michael on the plane. Let me ask you this. Is it true that you offered Nike a chance to nix future endorsement deals for Nike or, or for Michael with other products, if they'd pay him $10 million a year in the fourth year of, a, of that first five-year deal and they turned it down. So I just want to explain to everybody, this is kind of like, you know, a golfer who Tiger Woods, for instance, who was with Nike, he doesn't wear a bunch of other insignias on a shirt. It's just Nike. And so that's what it sounds like to me, you were giving Nike the chance to do with Michael is make him more exclusive to Nike and, and they turned it down. Well, what, exactly right. The reason for that was because Phil, if I'm in Phil Knight's chair and I'm the chairman of Nike and I have this amazing guy, I don't want anyone else to have him. Right. I don't want, to have him. I don't want McDonald's to have him. I don't want Haynes to have him. I don't want anyone to have him because every deal you do and you show commercials has the potential to dilute the message that Nike's creating. It, they lose authorship of the message to a certain extent. And so my job as his, as his marketing manager um, was to manage, to manage this issue, to manage the balance, how much is too much. And, and so as we started to do a second contract at the end of the fourth year, one year left on the deal, Fred Schreier was a really good guy, was negotiating the deal for Nike. And I knew that Phil was very, very concerned with the issue of dilution because he's a smart guy. And I said, look, if you want to address the issue of dilution. Now, before I get to that, Michael's first deal with Nike was the largest shoe deal in history of basketball. It was 1.4 million a year. So I read, I read people saying, well, for 250, of course, he liked Nike. It was 1.4 billion. A portion of it was current, a portion of it was an annuity. And on top of that, he got stock that today is probably worth $50 million. So you can say his first deal was, <laughs> Lord. His first deal was over $10 million, but no one knew how big the stock was going to get. And um, the most important part of the deal is because he had his own line, he was making royalties on the sale of his own products. Nike, Nike's expectation is that we were killing it. We hit a grand slam home run 
at the end of year three, in the summer between year three and year four, 87, 88, we'd sell 3 million. In year one, he sold 126 million. So today, if you think about it, you know, guy like LeBron makes a lot of money from Nike. Kobe made a lot of money from Nike. Um, uh, Curry's making a ton of money from, you know, from Under Armour. Harden's making $13 million from Adidas. Jordan sells $3 billion worth of Jordans a year and it's growing. I think in a few years it'll be five billion. Let's suppose he gets a standard royalty, which is 5%. Okay, three billion, that's $150 billion. Does it really matter whether his guarantee, which applies against the royalty, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million? It could be a dollar. And so when I look back, clearly the Jordan relationship with Nike is easily the most successful relationship endorsement relationship in the history of sports, any sport, any player, any time. Um, it's the greatest deal I ever did. And at the same time, I oftentimes think it's the worst deal I ever did because if I had a crystal ball dad and I knew that they were gonna sell a hundred million dollars worth of product in the first year, I wouldn't have worried about getting a 1.4 million a year. I would have signed for a dollar a year and a 50-50 royalty. And when he's selling, $3 billion worth of products, he'd be making a billion five. Right, right. But how are you going to know that? It's so funny to hear Michael talk about you coming up with the idea of, of Air Jordan. And he always gets his smile on his face. And he's like, ah, he tried to come up with a few more ideas like that. But who was to know? I mean, that's a, that's a once in a lifetime thing. I mean, it's, we will never, ever see something like that between an athlete and company happen again. You know, ironically, you know, just for historical reasons, I've created 14 shoe brands in the NBA. We created the answer for Allen Iverson at Reebok. Uh, we created uh, X marks the spot for Spot Built. We didn't sign Jordan with, with uh, Spot Built. We created a line for Water Brothers after we did Space Jam. Uh, they had a shoe that eventually became, that was, that was shepherded by a really smart guy in LA named Steve Jackson, uh, who turned that into Shaq's line. That became Shaq's line down the road. Uh, we have a ton of them. You, Ewing Shoe, Patrick Ewing at age 50, 58 this year is still selling shoes and making seven figures a year for Ewing Athletic. He had his own company. Uh, so we've had a lot of shoe lines. Clearly Jordan is singular, you know. I'll tell you an interesting story. One of my dearest friends and clients that I've ever had is Elton Brand. He's like my little brother. He's the GM of the Sixers. Of course. I love the guy. He's really smart. Uh, just a great friend, great dad, um, and a great GM. And, and Michael always teases me because he went to Duke. But um, so we're doing a deal for him with Nike. I'm out in Indianapolis talking to Lynn Merritt, who's the head of basketball for Nike, who's LeBron's guy, loves LeBron. And, and, uh, they make him an offer, which I think is way below his value. And I said to Lynn, you know, gosh, you're paying a guy in Indiana a million one. Why wouldn't you pay Elton Braders in LA as much as a guy in Indiana? It's a way bigger market. And so he gets a sort of, you know, cocky attitude. Said, really? How many shoes do you think Elton Brand will sell for us? I said, that's easy. Zero. What's your next question? And I said, I said, Lynn, there's only one guy in the entire NBA that truly sells shoes. And he goes, who's that, LeBron? And I said, no, blank. 
His name is Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm a big LeBron fan, uh, and he's a great player. I think that if they put Dan Helly on a pair of Nikes, the way they market the shoes, and they go to Foot Locker and say, if you want Jordans, you got to take 200,000 pairs of Hellies, they take them. They may not sell them, but they'd have to take them. And so I think that if you ask me in the, in the last 50 years, Michael Jordan is an unparalleled universe for selling shoes. If you ask me the second best seller of shoes, it's a laydown, Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson has the most unique following. You know, he was the first sort of crossover hip hop player in the NBA. Sure. He did things his own way. He was sort of like the Frank Sinatra doing it my way. Uh, I love Allen. We represent Allen the first two years. Uh, we actually have a good relationship today. Uh, very, very interesting person. Um, and and he's, got, he's got a cult following. I don't know why, like Patrick, I think Allen could sell anything today. I think he still is revered in, in basketball. I think the rest of the players are great at endorsing the brand, the Nike brand. Hey, David, let me ask you, you since you bring up Iverson, he had a really unique deal with Reebok where he had, what was it, 25 million in deferred payments? Did you do that deal? Yes. He had a rabbi. So this is, this is amazing. Iverson was the first pick of the draft in 1996. He signed the highest shoe contract ever for $60 million with Reebok for 10 years. And Stefan Marbury was the fourth pick, got $400,000 a year from AM1. And a couple of years down the road, he asked us to represent him, thinking that we could press some kind of magical button and get him the money, which, which we couldn't. But um, Alan was special, and he had a rabbi trust in his contract that deferred a certain portion of the money and gave him security down the road. Um, but he made a ton of money for Reebok just from his basic deal. He made $6 billion a year. The, the, the Jordan deal, the shoe deal, that's I mean, the most incredible deal in my mind in, in, as we talked about in sports history for an athlete in a singular company. What was the second best deal, the most lucrative thing that you brought to Michael besides Nike? I'll tell you the most, I don't know if it's the most lucrative, I'll tell you, this, this is what I wish that Jordan Dale had become, and this happened, this happened sort of inadvertently, it wasn't planned. So at about his third year, the NBA started producing videos of the players, and the first two videos they did were Magic and Kareem, you know, two of the greatest players ever, many sure. champions. And I decided it'd be fun to do a video of Michael because his moves were incredible. So I went to Gary Bettman, who's now the commissioner of the NHL, who was running NBA Entertainment. And I said, Gary, I'd like, like to do a deal with Jordan, but I want to do like an old fashioned movie studio deal where we commit to do three videos up front. And I want you to pay him $600,000 guaranteed against a 15% royalty on the sales. I love Gary Bettman, but we had a, we had a really good relationship, but we had a contentious relationship because, because of the roles that we were cast in, not because we didn't like each other. So he said to me, gosh, like when you wake up in the morning, do you decide that you're gonna be an asshole? That's what he said to me. Like, <laughs> how, am I being, how am I being that by asking you for this deal? He said, like, do you even have a concept of how many videos we'd have to sell to cover a guarantee of $600,000? I said, I really don't want you to help me out. He said, we would have to sell 200,000 videos 
in order to make enough profit just to pay the 200,000. I said, well, is that a lot in your, you know, in your universe? He goes, well, the two leading videos of all time for the NBA, Magic and Kareem, Magic sold 50,000 units and Kareem sold 35,000 units. You're asking us to commit three times the combined for those two guys. That will never happen. So over the course of the next six months, we went back and forth. We finally made a deal where I reduced the guarantee from 600,000 to 300,000. And he increased the royalty from 15% to 50%. Oh, wow. Now, how many, this is a little bit like Nike with the 3 million sales. How many videos did we sell in the first five years? Five years, let's say, uh, let's say 9 million. 4 million. They Four projected million. 200,000. We sold, oh. and he made 50%. So he made a ton of money on the video. <laughs> you know, and listen, I think that everything Michael touched, he had a fragrance with Bijan. You know, he has rest, we did restaurants, we did car dealerships. I mean, there's a whole empire of businesses that we created for Michael that he deserves. And um, we sort of got away from simply doing endorsements to owning, you know, owning pieces of the franchise, so to Were speak. Were you doing that early on, David, in terms of getting equity stakes in companies as, as yeah. opposed to, you know, a, a lump sum $500,000 payment, million dollar payment? Were you doing that very early in the process with Michael? Well, he owned, he owned both stock and Nike, and he had an equity in, in his brand. He, owned, he had a royalty on it. That is equity, you know. Sure, yeah. And we did that from day one. Now, we didn't do that with, we didn't do that with McDonald's or Coca-Cola. We couldn't, you know, what, what people find amazing to understand is that Magic had one national deal in his first five years in the NBA with 7-Up for one year. One year. Uh, part of a group campaign with John Mackerel and a bunch of other athletes. Larry Bird had none, Kareem had none, Dr. J had none. People didn't believe that a team sport athlete in basketball could be a spokesman for a national company. So we started Michael out in his marketing program with three companies, Coke, McDonald's, and Chevrolet. We had to pound them into submission to sign them for peanuts. His first McDonald's deal was 25,000 in Chicago, and 25,000. A Trump. regional deal, correct? It was only regional. Now, even more amazing, at the end of the two years of the deal, the woman who ran North Carolina for marketing did not want to renew the deal because she couldn't understand how she could possibly market Michael Jordan, who's from Wilmington, North Carolina, and played for the University of North Carolina, but is living in Chicago, how she could use it in marketing in Carolina. And after that, decision i think she got transferred to afghanistan (laughs) i can't it is it is so fascinating we i could literally do five hours with you just talking about the endorsement deals i'm gonna do a quick uh quick ad to pay some bills here Uh, (laughs) i I should have you do the ad it might be a conflict of interest with uh with matthew and jordan though this is uh this is a great company david called viore it is uh performance apparel and I love this stuff. I've been wearing it for a couple of years now. Um, and we are offering you the opportunity to get 20% off. Just go to vioriclothing.com slash helipod, V-U-O-R-I, clothing.com slash helipod. Unbelievable shorts. I love the core shorts. They're the most comfortable lined athletic short I promise that you will ever wear. The Ponto pant, they have joggers. They have tremendous workout shirts. And these are crazy soft shirts. They have hoodies. You can wear these for yoga. You can wear this for playing basketball. You can wear it when you go for a jog. 
and you can wear it to hang out around the house because we're doing a lot of that these days. VioriClothing.com slash Helipod. Get 20% off right now. David, back to you, my friend. Um, I have so many more questions for you that I want to hit on. Do I get a chance to do an ad for like Brand Jordan? After? Yeah. Well, this, this whole thing's an ad for Brand Jordan. What are you talking about? He not Chris Huskey. He doesn't need my help. Hey, he is he is doing uh, he is doing okay. Let, how often do you have you talked to him since the the documentary has uh, has been airing? A very long talk a couple of weeks ago. He, you know, he's such a fascinating guy. I, I read an amazing book called The Second Life of Tiger Woods, written by Michael Bamberger, yep. who I met through a very dear friend of mine in Philly named Jay House. Michael is one of the, maybe the number one golf writer in America. He's written a number of golf books. And it's an incredible insight into Tiger Woods, his comeback from his fall when he won the Masters uh, a year ago. And um, I called up Michael, who's obviously very close with Tiger. I said, Mike, you've got to read this book. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll read it. We got into a long talk about motivation and decision-making. And he, you know, this is not intended to be a self-promotion. I want to give you an insight into Michael. If somebody asked the average person on the street, if Michael wanted to pay David a compliment, you know, other than the fact of staying with him his whole career, which is the ultimate compliment, what do you think it would be? People would say, well, he invented Air Jordan or he made him a lot of money or he broke through the barriers and marketed him. None of those would remotely register for me. The thing that he said that's the most endearing to me about Michael, they did a documentary on me on ESPN a couple of years ago. It didn't quite get the viewership of The Last Day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched it. And the first guy on the dock, I mean, it was flattering to me because Michael was on the dock, Patrick Ewing was on the dock, John Thompson was on the dock, David Stern, my idol growing up, Jerry West was on the dock, Elton Brand, um, Coach K, uh, Greg Monroe. It was, it was amazing. Michael comes on the first scene, and all he says is, David taught me the business. Now, to me, that is the ultimate compliment. And Michael and I had this long discussion about the role of an agent with a star player, with any player, but particularly a star player who's gonna be thrust into a lot of important business decisions. And he said that when, when I was young, he taught me how to make good decisions. For example, the very first decision we ever made, should I give all the rights to Nike for shoes, clothes, hats, bags, sweatbands, accessories, or should we split it up? I gave him the option to do either. Told you make more money in the short run, splitting it up. But if the, if in the possibility we could ever create a brand, which is a long shot, um, you'll make more money in the long run. Now, that's my philosophy, personally, but it's Michael's decision. And he's so bright and insightful that he understands that athletes today are faced with a lot of very, very important decisions. A lot of them are every day, like what to put on social media. And everything you put on is going to affect how people look at you. It's going to affect your, your image. And most of them are so coddled by, by the people around them. Um, and worse than being coddled, people are afraid to tell clients what they really believe because they know they don't want to hear it. And if you tell them something they don't want to hear, they're afraid they're going to get fired. And I think one of the things that bonded Michael and I together, I was very young when we started. I was 33, is that he came to know early on that I was very opinionated, very, very competitive, 
um, and that I would always tell him the truth. You know, I wanted him to know this is what I think. You don't have to listen. You don't have to follow my advice. But if you want to know how I think you should respond to the situation, this is my best recommendation. I think today, very few agents manage their players. I think the players are managing the agents because they're so intimidated to tell a player. I'll give you a great example. Like, I love Zion Williamson. I've never met him. I love the way he handles himself. It's not so much how he plays. It's very exciting to watch play. I've had one or two pretty good players in my career. But Indeed. Uh, Zion seems like a great kid, and I've never met him in person. Be very likable, charming guy. He's humble. He's, he's in tune, you know, with his teammates. He's great. I mean, he's got an amazing personality. I give a lot of credit to his parents for the way he was raised. And I told a lot of my friends, you know, coming out of Duke, he reminds me of Elton Brand. Elton was 285 when he left Duke. And I told him right away, you're not playing 30 games a year, you're playing 100. You know, you gotta, you gotta slim down or you're, you're just not gonna play more than five years. And it's hard to tell that to Zion Williamson, who's the talk of the town, the number one pick in the draft. Um, to me, the first thing you tell Zion is look, you're gonna make a lot of money for a long period of time. Do you wanna make $20 million a year for five years? Or do you wanna make $20 million a year for 20 years or 40 years? You know, you've got to find a way, even though you could play at 280, you know, the, the torque you're putting on your joints, you're just never gonna last. And very, very hard to say that. But if you can't say that to him, then you shouldn't step up to the plate and be his agent because that's what is required to, to Matt. If you care about him, you've got to go to the mat and make them understand how, how important it is. Difficult conversations between agents and players of that caliber. I, I can't imagine. And they've only gotten more difficult as the years have progressed. Was it difficult when Michael was playing? I look at some of the numbers and there, there's been a lot of talk at, uh, throughout the documentary about how underpaid Scottie Pippen was. But for much of Michael Jordan's career, he was not earning as much as he should have been. 95-96, David, the 32nd highest paid player in the NBA. He was $50,000 ahead of Chris Dudley and behind guys like Brian Shaw, Clarence Weatherspoon, and Benoit Benjamin. Obviously, the last two seasons, he made 30 and 33, which are basically $50 million in, in today's money, and you knew that was coming. But was it hard to convince Michael that it was for the better good to not be the highest paid player in the NBA for most of his career. What happened, I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, Donald Dell did his first contract for seven years. And the minute that he signed that, he was doomed to be underpaid unless he played out the seven year contract and became a free agent in 1991. In 1991, I signed Patrick for two years for $12.2 million a year. Okay, Michael probably would have made 20. Um, but he just literally couldn't go seven years psychologically making what Don negotiated for him as a rookie. Right. Michael would have made way more money if his first contract was for one year at the minimum. Sure. And he a free agent. He would have but of course it. nobody's going to do that, right? Of course nobody's going to do that. Well, you know, no one's going to do it, but I'll give you a but, okay? So in 1985, when I represented Patrick, I did Patrick's contract. And I made him the highest paid player, not the highest paid rookie, highest paid player in the history of the NBA by 55% more than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. 
okay? Mm-hmm. And I was so worried that, because he signed for 10 years, that the deal would never be, would never be in phase with the marketplace for 10 years, that I created something that is commonplace today called an early termination option. I gave the player the option to terminate the contract after six years. And, and we did, and we terminated the contract. We then signed, for, we tried to terminate. The league said we hadn't met the criteria. We arbitrated and lost and signed an extension for 12.2 million. And so using that benchmark, when Juwan Howard, who was the last class of rookies that ever could negotiate their own contracts, 1994, the next year, the union put in a wage scale. So the first four picks of the draft were Glenn Big Dog Robinson, number one, Jason Kidd, Hall of Fame, number two, Grant Hill, the one player that got away from me, who I love to death, number three, and Daniel Marshall, number four. Juwan was number five. So... Grant Hill and Jason made the all-star team six times the first nine years. Juwan made it once. At the end of nine years, Juwan Howard made $47 million more than every player picked ahead of him or more. Five million a year, 70% more money than Grant Hill and, and, uh, and uh, Jason Kidd. Right. And the reason he did that is because he had what Pippen really wanted but didn't have an agent capable of getting. He had a 12-year contract for $42 million with a right to get out after the second year. And his second year, he made the all-star team. The rules changed and unrestricted free agency came in. And because his owner, Abe Poland, went out of his way to try to screw Juwan on his rookie contract, because he, this is, I got to tell you this story. The number one pick that year, Glenn Robinson. Big dog. Big dog. I had negotiated a deal for Lonzo Mourning the year before, in 94, for $113 million, which I turned out. It was too long. It had some deferred money in it. I told Zoe to wait. He thought I was, I'd lost my mind, but he agreed to wait. So the next year, Dr. Tucker, who's Magic's agent, who's a fun guy, represents Glenn Robinson, and asked the Milwaukee Bucks at number one to pay him $100 million. Herb Cole, who's a U.S. Senator who owns the team, one of the funniest lines ever says to Dr. Tucker, let's reverse roles. You pay me $100 million and you can have my entire franchise. <laughs> and so he paid him 68 for 10. Um, and so that's, that was the environment. You know, the environment was, you know, people wanted long-term deals because they, they, wanted, they wanted security. And we, we were setting the market. So, Juwan and his negotiations, we had, we had represented the Wizards' number one pick the year before, who was six, Juwan was five, named Calvert Chaney, who was the national right. player of the year. My partner, M- Michael Higgins, did the deal in two hours, got him a six-year six deal for $18 million, clean. We asked for Juwan $4,125,000 a year for six years. $24,150,000 was the exact number. The Wizards offered him three years for $9 million which is the same money as Cheney for half the amount of years, a year later, and he went, and it went number five. And we had World War III over the contract. I called Abe and said, why are we battling? And the reason we were battling is because Abe was incensed at Big Dog's demand for $100 million. So he comes out publicly and says, I'm going to show the rest of the league the right way to deal with rookies. And he put the clamps down on the Juwan negotiation. And so we sat all summer. He missed the first missed the first 
four games, five, seven games. He missed the first seven games of the regular season. And then we signed him for $42 million for, 11, for 12 years with an out after two. I was so angry at Abe for doing that to Juwan, who's one of the most decent men I've ever met. He's classy, he's humble. And I called him in my office once he got back and started playing, was playing well. And I said, you know, Juwan, I should be Italian because I never forget these things. You know, my wife taught me when I was young, don't get mad, just get even. I said, he will pay for embarrassing you publicly. I'm going to make you the first $100 million player in the history of professional sports. And Juwan, being as humble as he is, said, David, I love you to death. I love your passion. I love your loyalty. But if you think that anyone's ever going to pay me $100 a year, you should go to crack rehab. That will never happen. <laughs> okay. That was 1994. In the summer of 1996, Juwan became the first ever $100 million player in the history of professional team sports. He signed for $105 million. And that was my way of saying to Abe Poland, you know, you, you picked the wrong cowboy to fight with. You know, this is a fight you're not going to win. And it wasn't revenge. Turnaround is fair play. So I then came out publicly because Abe's comment was his justification for fighting Juwan as a rookie was he wanted to show the rest of the league the right way to deal with rookies. And I said, well, I guess he showed him. We asked for a six-year deal for $24 million, $150 for six. And his first six years, he made $54 million. So I guess he really showed him, I'm not going to take that $24 million deal. Give me the $54 million deal. Well, and then, and then Michael Jordan ends up playing the uh, last couple of years of his career for A-Pole in Washington. I know that's a whole other story that, that I don't want to go down that, that rabbit hole at this minute. But I do want to ask you, um, David, what would you have done differently with Michael? Is there anything looking back that you said, man, I wish I would have done this? Well, you know, you have to understand, we started with Michael with no precedent, with no player to say, let's do it like Magic did it. Let's do it like Bird did it. You know, no one knew that he could do the kinds of things that he ended up doing. And while most of the companies fit together well, for example, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, McDonald's is the largest seller of Coca-Cola products in the world. They fit together. But, but Coke didn't do a very good job of marketing Michael the first five years. And so we switched to Gatorade. He was the only athlete that they had endorsing the product. Today, you've got LeBron, you've got you know, Dwayne Wade, you had Kevin Garnett, you have a lot of guys. But back then, he was the only one, which I loved. He did it by himself. And, and so we wanted all the things to be totally integrated. And while they were largely integrated, it wasn't a perfect seamless integration where if I knew that we could have got to the point we got to from day one, I would have chosen a certain mix of companies that fit together perfectly where they could right. market all the products. All right. I, I want to take the focus off money a little bit here with Michael, because I, I think there are some fascinating um, stories that, that are going to come up in the dock, some that have already come up in the dock. Uh, after the 88 season, Sam Smith wrote in his book that the Bulls considered trading Jordan to the Clippers for a combination of five players or draft choices. H how many trade offers were there for Jordan that made you guys actually say, hmm, this, this might work? You know, honestly, you know, I know Sam. Uh, I think Sam has written a lot of stuff that's supposed to be nonfiction. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, 
Jerry Krause, you have to understand, is one of the themes of the doc. Jerry Krause was not a bad guy. He was a difficult guy to deal with because he was incredibly insecure. And his insecurity was heightened by the fact that he inherited Michael Jordan as a player. Rod Thorne, who I admire, respect, and like immensely, uh, one of the really classy executives in NBA history, drafted Michael. And when Jerry Reinsdorf bought the team in 85, he hired Krause and fired Rod. And no matter what Krause did, there's going to be a certain segment of people that said, big deal, you have Michael Jordan, how hard is it to win a championship? And the answer is it's very hard. Since 1980, less than half the franchises in the NBA have won a title. There's 40, 30 teams in 40 years, less than 15 teams have won. It's not that easy. But Krause went out of his way to take long shots so that he would get the credit. He, his theory was organizations win, players don't win. And I don't want to ask the pop question of how many championships the organization has won since Michael retired in 1998, zero. And because I love the owner, the owner Jerry Reinsdorf is one of the really classy owners in sports, smart, tough, fair, fair, really bright guy. I love the guy. And I think he used Krause as a filter. He used Krause to piss everybody off. So when they went to him as the owner, sort of a court of appeals, they had been marinated by Krause. They were a lot easier to deal with. I wouldn't deal with him. I told Jerry Reisdorf once, you know, when he begged me to sit down for two hours with Krause to do a deal for a rookie, I said, Jerry, in the law, they call that cruel and unusual punishment. Don't ask me to deal with Krause. It's really demeaning to me. Um, and so I let me ask you, David, let me ask you if this is a fair and accurate statement. And I believe it was from uh, David Halberstam, who, who was the great author, uh, the late great author. Uh, he said, Jerry deserved more credit than he got but he wanted more credit than he deserved. Uh, great, great, great insight. And see, look, what I learned, listen, when I started representing Michael, I was 33 years old. I had represented James Worthy. I had represented Phil Ford from North Carolina. We had I was a junior agent for Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, the world-class players. I represented some pretty damn good players. And I was cocky as could be the first few years because we were breaking ground, doing things that no one had ever thought could be done. And people told me they couldn't be done. And after about three or four years, one day I sort of had an epiphany. I can't tell you something specific happened. I said, wow, you are really lucky that Michael is as loyal to you as he is. He could have anyone represent him. He could have William Morris as the largest Hollywood agency represent him. He could have Burston Marstow as the biggest PR agency represent him. He could have an accounting firm, Price Waterhouse represented. He could have the big law firm, Baker and McKenzie represented. But he has you represented, and he's been really loyal to you. Just shut up and stop bragging about all the stuff you've done. Your work speaks for itself. Now, someone should have given that advice to Krauss. Krauss won six rings in his career, okay? The only other two people that I'm aware of in that period of time that have six rings are Red Auerbach, who's the greatest general manager of all time, and Pat Riley. Um, and I guess perhaps Jerry West, who's my idol, he may have six, but you're in a very small company. If you never said a word about organizations winning, you just point to your hand, you have six rings, speaks for itself. But Krause's insecurity didn't allow him to do that. Now listen, in my career, you know, this is an interesting, if I give you an interesting analogy, I don't want to compare myself to Krause, but because of our proximity to Michael Jordan, when Michael first came out, 
and we did the shoe deal and we did McDonald's, Coca-Cola, we did all these deals that no one had. People basically were saying, David Falk is like Dr. Frankenstein. He's invented this guy in his lab. This special guy could jump and he got a great smile. I didn't invent Michael Jordan. His parents invented Michael Jordan. They did an amazing job of raising him, giving him great values. He went to the University of North Carolina, played for one of the greatest college coaches in history, Dean Smith, who kept him in check and taught him how to play great defense. And we inherited this, this diamond. And my job was to polish the diamond and make it shine more brightly. It already was a diamond. And, you know, that's, that's your role. And so by the end of his career, people basically say, oh, you think Falk's a big deal? My eight-year-old daughter could represent Michael Jordan. You think it's hard when you're Michael Jordan? Now, the truth is somewhere in between the beginning and the end. I wasn't Dr. Frankenstein. I didn't invent Michael Jordan. And I don't think I was an innocent bystander watching him do everything by himself. We were a great team. And the best thing about being a team with Michael Jordan is I'm sort of like Judd Bushler. I don't have to be a starter. I just have to be on the team. And whether I'm 1% responsible for what happened to him or 50% responsible is irrelevant. We're not dividing up the credit. I'm on the team and it's really working well. And if you're an agent representing Michael Jordan probably is more honorific than being in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if there'll ever be an agent in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, it would be an honor, but not as big an honor for me as the fact that for the, from every day that Michael Jordan played professional basketball, he allowed me to represent him. And that's the greatest possible honor if you're an agent in any sport in the world. The greatest. They, they throw around the term GOAT uh, far too often, David. And, and I think there's really only one, one GOAT in the history of sports, and that obviously has to be Jordan. Um, just going back to Krause, I don't know if you ever considered any of these, but there, there must have been a, a, a lot of proposals, right? If you're any smart owner in the NBA and you realize that you have somebody like Jerry Krause who's eager to prove that he, he is more responsible than maybe some people gave him credit for or he can win without Jordan, there had to be some proposals out there that, that you guys heard about, or did Jerry not keep those? I've, I've never heard, honestly, a single trade proposal from Michael. I'll, I'll tell you why you, could, you really couldn't trade Michael Jordan, okay? In my opinion, if you're Jerry Reinsdorf, forget about Jerry Krause. We're doing a second contract. I told you it took 18 meetings. Right. You're dealing with two guys named Jerry. So I, to make it easy, I call Krause Jake, because Krause loved baseball. It's sort of, in my mind, Jake connoted like a, a guy from rural Mississippi playing catcher in, in the minors. Right. So we're at this one meeting in Florida on the way to spring training for Jerry Reinsdorf. And I'm trying to get Michael $4 million a year. Kareem's second highest paid player in the league making $2 million a year. And Kraus jumps in and gives me like 19 reasons why the Bulls have been successful that have nothing to do with Michael Jordan from having six women that they just hired to take season ticket orders to Billy McKinney scouring the globe to find talent. And he says, I wonder how much credit to give us. Gives me like Academy Award, you know, thanking the whole world. I said, Jake, you want how much credit I give you those things? Zero credit. And what else do you want to talk about? And he starts arguing and Ryan says, Jake, shut up. 
David's right. He goes, Michael deserves all the credit, but we're not going to pay him $4 million a year. Now, that's what an intelligent person says in negotiations. But I asked Jerry Ronsdorf to pay him $4 million because the season that the, the attendance at Chicago Stadium went from 6000 a game to 18000 a game. The price of parking went up. The concessions went up. The sale of everything Michael touched, he had the Midas touch turned to gold. And the incremental revenue that he brought to the Bulls alone justified paying whatever he asked for, forgetting how good he was as a player. Now, if you trade him for 15 number one draft picks for your whole team, those guys will never produce the revenue that Jordan's going to produce to Jerry Reinsdorf and make his franchise, which he bought for like, I think he bought it for 16 million peanuts. Wow. Maybe 13 million. And it's probably worth today 3 billion. A lot of that, a lot of that's due to Reinsdorf's masterful management. A lot of it's due to Michael Jordan. And so Krauss probably on his own entertained trading options. I can't imagine Jerry, Jerry Reinsdorf would have ever approved a trade for Michael Jordan, unless he traded for the entire All-Star team. Certainly would have made a whole lot of business sense. One more trade story to ask you about, because I just saw this one uh, a short time ago. Before the last season in Chicago, I believe I have the time frame right. This was, Scotty was going into the last year of his deal. Um, they had a deal worked out with the Celtics, and like a $60 million deal was on the table, and it was for the third and the sixth pick. The Bulls were going to take Tracy McGrady they were going to trade Pippen and Luke Longley, but Michael nixed the deal. True story? I, I really don't – never heard that. Uh, I would say that, you know, Tracy McGrady, who became a great player in his fifth year, averaged less than nine points a game his first four years. So to, to trade Scottie Pippen, who was a great defender for Tracy McGrady, who was a great offensive player, Michael might have quit. You know, Michael, as he explained the doc, not going to play for any but Phil. He, he kept it together as long as he could. And when Krauss set in motion a chain of events to undo the team, he basically said, I'm never going to play here anymore. I'm not going to play for anybody but Phil. If you're a coach or an agent and you have a player as loyal as he is, I mean, you, you can't even begin to thank him enough. I mean, that's one of his great qualities. He's incredibly loyal. To, to people and he's incredibly respectful to his coaches. So again, I think, I think that the team was in fairness to the team, Pippen had issues with his back and there were some worries. Was he going to be able to last? That's one of the semi legitimate justifications for breaking up the team that produced the last dances. They were worried that, that Pippen, you know, may not be able to play long-term and that some of the fringe players were going to have a value on the open market. So like Halberstam, it was way disproportional to their value because they'd been on a team. Michael individually raised the value of all those players uh, just, by, just by playing with them. And, and so, you know, I understood that. To me, the most amazing thing of the whole doc is, is that if you're going to make a decision not to renew Phil Jackson, that's been your prerogative as management. But to announce that before you start the season and – to say that if he goes 82 and 0, he's not going to come back. <laughs> it would be like saying to like, like say to Simone Biles, okay, she's doing the all around. And in every round, she's got a perfect 10. But like saying to Simone, in this last exercise, if you get a 10, we're not going to give you the gold medal. 
or like say to uh, like if you had a sales manager selling ads on the helipod and you said, look, if you come in and triple the revenues that we've had for the last three years on the show, it's what you know we're not going to renew your contract. It goes against the grain of the basic risk reward system of capitalism in America. Now, so why would you announce that? And the answer, that is a function of Krauss's incredible insecurity. Doesn't make him a bad person, just a very insecure person. And exactly as Haberstam's quote is, is elegant in its simplicity. He did deserve more credit than he got, and he didn't deserve a fraction of the credit that he sought. And all he had to do was shut up and let the people say, wow, the guy's won six rings, must be doing something right. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that. And it was just simply because I guess it had a lot to do with that Sam Smith book because he felt like, he felt like Phil was one of the people who gave Sam a lot of the information that were anonymous quotes in the book. And, um, and that kind of soured the relationship from there, from what I understand. I think I, was, I'll tell you what I think soured the relationship. Okay, so Doug Collins is the coach. Doug Collins is a great coach. He's an, maybe the best announcer of all time, like play-by-play. Play. Fantastic. He's phenomenal. He makes it, the explain, you could be a general manager and ex, understand that on, and you could never watch basketball again and understand it. And I love Doug. I've told him many times, the, the, he's so competitive. The pressures of playing, you just stay in the broadcast booth. You're so great at it. Um, and so Michael loved Doug. He hired Doug when he came to Washington. And Doug was doing a great job in Chicago, but Krauss fired him for a lot of reasons. One, he wanted to run the triangle, and Doug didn't. Now, maybe that was the right decision, maybe. But so he hired Phil. He didn't hire Pat Riley, didn't hire Greg Popovich. He didn't hire a big name. He hired a guy that he could control completely. It would owe his job. He hired him from the Albany Patroons of the Continental Basketball Association, which is the precursor to the G League. In the early part, they had a great relationship because Phil was appreciative of getting the job. And he was pretty, once Phil started winning and getting credit because of his unique methods, I mean, he was really into the, the Zen and the Native American stuff that you see in the doc. Sure. Cross wasn't getting the credit he wanted, but Phil was getting the credit. I think that really rankled Krauss. And Krauss would come to the locker room. Phil didn't want him in the locker room. He wanted that to be the private domain of the players. Once you get inside that cocoon, it's just us as a team. And so a lot of things that happened that created tension between Phil and Jerry. And I think Jerry was very jealous of Phil because, again, as the architect of the team, as the head of the team, he wanted the credit. And first you have Jordan getting the credit. Now you, he brings in his own guy, and he's getting the credit. And that's why I think he let him go. And Jerry Reinsdorf was the one who made the deal to bring him back for the sixth year. And what very few people know is that Jerry Reinsdorf, after the sixth championship, tried to bring him back again. But, but Krauss had so muddied the waters that that was a rescue mission that Reinsdorf wasn't able, wasn't able to pull off. I did not know that. That's fascinating. A um, couple, couple of getaway questions here. I, I would be remiss, and they're going to get into this uh, in, in the ensuing weeks in the doc. If I didn't ask about when Michael stopped playing basketball, when he went to play baseball, what, what on earth was your reaction, and did you try to talk him out of it? Okay. So if you understand my relationship with Michael, he loves to tweak you. It's affectionate. He loves to tease you. and like for, he'll, he'll say many times, oh, yeah, David definitely came up with uh, Eric Jordan. It was the best idea I ever had, and it was the last good idea. 
I, I chuckle at that. I think it's very funny. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, but he likes, to, he likes to tweak it. So when he called me up at home on a Saturday, and he said, like, no introduction. He said, I just want you to know I'm retiring. I know that he was like a knee-jerk. He expected me to say, oh, God, that's terrible. He can't retire. 17 reasons why. And I fought my natural inclination to say that because he's 29 years old. He's at the top of his game. He's just won three titles. He's the MVP. He's the scoring leader. I mean, he's everything. And I thought for about 30 seconds, and this is exactly what I said to him. I said to Michael, it is the American dream to work really hard at something that you're doing. It could be a vocation or an avocation. To, to become the best in the world at what you do, to make a lot of money in recognition of your, of your performance. And at that point, you could do whatever the hell you want to do that makes you happy. You've done the first three things. You work incredibly hard for many years. Uh, you become the greatest basketball player in the world. You've made a lot of money. Um, and if playing baseball floats your boat, go for it. Now, ironically, he did play baseball. And Sports Illustrated, that I have every issue back to 1964, wrote a famous story where they blasted him and said he was an embarrassment to baseball. Now, he didn't become Babe Ruth or Derek Jeter, but not having played baseball since the junior high, he worked his ass off and batted 200. I would challenge any major league baseball player that hasn't played basketball since the ninth grade to come into the NBA, come into the G League and see if he could average 15 points a game. I'd love to see one guy that's able to do that. You know, the difference, do you read Moneyball? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. What's the difference between how many hits does it take in a week between a guy bats 300 and a guy bats 270? In a week, it takes one or two hits almost. One hit. Yeah. So batting 200, not having played baseball since like you're 13 years old, at double A level, it's pretty freaking amazing. Now, um, do I think if Michael had played baseball throughout high school, maybe into college like Bo Jackson or, or, or Dion? Yeah, I think he could have played. Ba Reisdorf said he could play major leagues if he had stuck with it. I think it was amazing, but more than his performance. What was amazing is that take a person who's the best of the world at something and you ask them, walk away from that comfort level where you're the best. I'm going to put you over here with something you've hardly ever done with a chances of succeeding are like one in 20 or less. You know, you're going to get rid of criticized. You're going to get ridiculed for doing this. And he did it because of the challenge it was the next challenge for him. He did it because it was a dream his dad had. He was incredibly close with his dad. It took amazing amount of courage to walk away from everything that's become easy for you. Um, we have the thing wired the way you want to have it wired and put yourself in a totally foreign environment. And I give him amazing, for me watching him in Birmingham was so much fun. It was the purity of sports, no endorsements, very little press, you know. Just Bus rides through small Southern towns. On a, on a luxury tour bus that we negotiated for. <laughs> <laughs> David, when you look at that, it's the biggest conspiracy theory in sports too, right? That, that because of gambling too much, David Stern said, Take a step away. When you hear that, what is your reaction? I think that um, I've seen a bunch of Oliver Stone movies, you know, JFK. People, when you get to the top, 
people love to root for you. To, and then when you get to the top, then they want to tear you down. They want to find flaws. And everybody wants to be the one to break the story of here's really the reason that Michael retired. Now, he announced at his press conference in 93, at the press conference in Chicago, they asked him, did the media drive you out? And Michael looked at him very sternly and said, I would never let you guys put your foot up my back and push me out the door. I'm doing this on my own. David Stern, on one of the, I don't know, I've seen the first eight episodes, so I'm not sure what episode it is. David made it clear that he absolutely never disciplined Michael or suspended him for gambling. He wasn't concerned about the gambling. The gambling was, the gambling was a smudge, you know, on a, on a pristine record because Al Wood, who was Michael's friend from Carolina, set him up with a guy. Al should have screened the guy and know that Michael shouldn't be playing golf with a guy who the, the FBI is chasing for money laundering. You know, I, I would, if, I, if he knew that the guy had done that, he wouldn't have played golf with him. And so it was a mistake. It was a mistake in judgment. But, you know, what, he didn't commit a crime. Who was the one player that, that Michael respected the most that might surprise us? Okay, I would say early on was Walter Davis. When Michael was in Carolina, he loved Walter Davis, who was a 6'6 swing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he loved Dr. J uh, coming into the pros because of his style. You know, like Michael, Doc is an amazingly articulate man, uh, great voice, soft-spoken, smart, very successful in business. He's my age. I, I, I was in the same class in high school. I used to follow him in high school. Um, uh, we played him when I was in college. In high school, Doc was six foot three. He had moves that no one had ever seen, but he was not much of a shooter. He didn't have to be a shooter. Didn't have to be sure. I watched him my junior year at Syracuse. We played him up at, at in UBass. We had a 6'11 center. It was the third round pick of the Portland Trailblazers named Billy Smith. And I think Doc had, I'm going to say 37 and 32 at six foot six against Billy Smith. Just ate him alive. I couldn't believe it was the same guy. He'd grown three or four inches and he was just otherworldly, amazing. Um, so he loved Dr. J. I'd probably say those two. Now, I'll give you a slightly different twist on your question. I asked Michael once recently, last couple of years, do you ever think how much fun, like sort of like the dream team it would have been to play with Magic and Bird and look to be like, you know, like I, I was from the moon. And he said, are you kidding? I would never want to play with Magic and Bird. I wanted to play against them every day and kick their butts. It was a competitive thing. And I'm sure Magic and Bird would have said exactly the same thing. Bird would have. Magic as a point guard, with slightly different mentality, might have felt differently. But those are all alpha guys. And they didn't want to band together because you can only have one leader of the pack. Uh, and so, you know, he admired a lot of players, but he wanted to, you know, he wanted to set the tone. And that's what you see in the movie. Like, you know, if, if you had one takeaway from the doc, if I were Siskel and Ebert, and I was summarizing the doc, I would say the following. Michael Jordan, having won three titles in the NBA in his 20s, takes a year and a half off to play baseball and comes back, uh, I think it was March 13th, 1994. I think it was the date at Market Square Arena. I was at the game. And he's now 31 years old. He knows he's got four or five prime years left in his career at best, where his athletic skills are going to be at, you know, at a height 
and he wants to win as many championships as he can in that very compressed period of time. He's going to take no prisoners, no excuses, no distractions that are going to stand in the way of that goal. He is single-mindedly chasing his own dream of getting his – he's not going to get 11 like Bill Russell had. He's going to get as many as any player in the modern era since Bill Russell, more. Um, and all the mental approach you see, the bullying on the court, the chiding, you know, the cajoling, you know, the interplay with Krause, interplay with Scott Burrell, grabbing Pippen by the singlets and screaming at him to get off the damn bench when he has a headache. And Michael, by the way, has food poisoning in the same game and he scores 38 points. Is all because he feels that if he doesn't do this, he's going to allow the other 14 guys to steal a championship right under his nose. And he just can't, he's not going to put up with that. He may lose it because he's not good enough, but he's not going to let somebody steal it. And so this is his mental approach to motivating, inspiring, intimidating, whatever it takes, because he's got a limited amount of time left to, to make it work. Do we, do we see any more David Falk in the, in the rest of the doc? Uh, I haven't seen episodes nine and 10. Um, you know, I think they're still being worked on. They're actually still editing the last couple of episodes of the doc as we speak. You know, it's interesting because there's a certain sort of quiet tension between myself and uh, my former partner, who's Michael's business manager, and the woman I hired to be sort of like his concierge, who has taken on a variety of titles. Not She hasn't taken on the premier of the world yet, but like image consultant, business manager, agent, whatever, you know, gatekeeper. And, you know, I'm surprised that they were, let me in, in the doc that, you know, that they were, they let like one minute of footage in. I know they, they hate it to acknowledge that all these things happened before she came on board. I mean, every single thing in the doc happened before we hired her uh, because she's sort of like the Russians invented baseball. <laughs> uh, but, Mike, but Mike Tolan, uh, who's, who's my dear friend, produced the movie and you know he clearly wanted to be in the movie and um you know i'm i'm proud to have worked for michael you know for all those years to honor as it says that in my business it's like getting the academy award if you say you're michael jordan's agent no higher compliment than that and and so uh, i enjoyed i did four hours of interviews i think i'm on the on screen for like 30 seconds but uh but i really enjoyed it the bald truth, David Falk, uh, one of the most impactful men in NBA history, the most impactful agent in NBA history. I've known him for more than a decade. Always been good to me. David, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated, my friend. I really, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I love it. By the way, as someone who's into branding, I love the name of your show, Helipod. That's awesome. I'm working on it, man. I'm, t I'm taking it after you. Maybe, I'll, maybe I can hire you down the road, but you're semi-retired. I'm never going to retire, especially after coronavirus. It's sort of like the Air Jordan of, of podcasts, Helipod. I love it. <laughs> the Air because, Jordan of podcasts. I'm going to steal that from you. Because it lifts you up. Ah, uh, you're the man. David, thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. Lots of good luck. Stay healthy. And stay in touch. <laughs>